You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to the show. This is your host for Surf Splendor, David Scales, as always. And in today's episode, I have a conversation with Matus Wetsuit, CEO and co-founder, John Campbell. We talk about what it takes to launch a small business, the necessity of authenticity and branding, and how to navigate growth while honoring your core values. Interesting stuff that I think really Matus is right in the thick of currently, but also areas that I've noticed personally that I think that they've strived in since their inception eight years ago. Um, it's tough enough just to bring a first quality product like the Matus wetsuit to the market, but scaling is something that it seems a lot of surf brands struggle with. So it's something that I was just interested to hear John's insight into. So this conversation was recorded on a sofa at Matusa's new and first retail location in Del Mar, California. It's known as the Black Spot. It's an eclectic space within the beach community of Del Mar, which is part of San Diego County. It's right on the main street that parallels the beach in the true tradition of bootstrapping startup companies. It's decorated with art and furniture pulled directly from John's home. So tell me about the black spot. Well, the name, yeah, uh, the name firstly comes from uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, where uh, I think most recently it was in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean flicks. Okay, but you know when somebody is marked with the black spot, they're obviously instantly a marked man of sorts. Yeah, and um, you know we, I don't know, like that story, and it's also the inverse of our logo. Oh, okay. So you reverse it and take the negative and boom, you know, you have something that sort of resembles a black spot. Sure. And um, I think that to one day envision there being at least one other black spot in some other, you know, place where Matus has a little bit of traction and community and following, I think that that's definitely part of the vision. Where would that space be ideally? Um, I, you know, we have a super global brand, I yeah. think. Um, you know, over the years we've seen... There'd be a nice amount of traction in Scandinavia and, you know, Australia and, uh, and Japan hmm. have each respectively represented a nice clip of business year over year. Um, Western Europe is a place where we've got fans. Um, so I think that those are probably like the zones that probably make nice. the most sense. I love the brand. Like, I think you guys have done a fantastic job with um, branding and kind of the conveying the ethos of what the brand's about. But then every little image that comes out related to the brand showcases that ethos. You guys have done a really good job with that stuff. No, thanks. I mean, the word the word Ichiban, to take it all the way back to the beginning, um, is the driving force of what we're doing. Sure. You know, it's like 
don't set out to do anything unless you're fully committed to do a great job with it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the last thing you ever want to be accused of is, is half-stepping something that you're claiming is your passion. Right. And uh, the word Ichiban is obviously, you know, on 8,000 different sushi restaurants and a few brands of beer, I'm sure. But at the same time, it's also just kind of like a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that you're dedicated to being the best at what you're setting out to do. And yeah. for us, it was, I think, an exciting opportunity to be able to make a best-of-breed product that just so happened to have been a wetsuit. Sure. But we've never viewed Matus as a strictly as a wetsuit brand or necessarily even as a quote-unquote surf brand because really these days who knows what that what that truly means. Yeah. Um, instead, we wanted to be known as a, as a organization that goes out and does great things. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that term Ichiban's almost lost its meaning because it's so overused. So I was glad to see that when you use it, you kind of redefine it for the reader. Thanks, man. You know, I think that's smart. Yeah. Because otherwise it does just seem like, oh, we're just slapping this label on that other people, that sushi restaurants use or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that it's funny because of media and how quickly information travels today. I think that it's really easy to get tripped up by platitudes and yeah. things that people may define as being trite or whatever until you kind of, pardon the expression, you know, flip that script a little bit yeah, and say, okay, cool, we're going to own the use of the word Ichiban here right. and do it in a way that's a little bit unique and do it in a way that's kind of our own voice. and blah, Totally. Blah, 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 so. And we'll talk more about kind of the Japanese um, cultural influence in the brand, I think, a little bit later, but let's just start off, I'll throw you a softball okay. and just ask you, um, why should somebody buy a Matus wetsuit? Okay. Let's hear it. Um, you should buy the Matus wetsuit because it's the best product in its class in the world. Um, you are quantitatively warmer and lighter because of the water that your wetsuit does not absorb. Okay. So typical neoprene is at very best around 65% water impermeable. Okay. Uh, geoprene is 98 to 99% water impermeable. So you're literally not absorbing water into the product mm-hmm. and um, of course you know it dries faster because it's not absorbing that water but at the same time you're a lot warmer because when the wind hits you you don't get that immediate evaporative heat loss um, it's just a bulletproof function first product awesome what is geoprene geoprene is limestone based rubber okay. um, made from a very specific kind of calcium carbonate um, so Dating back to 2005, um, I came across this this material um, that I felt like was very underutilized. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was researching an article for ESPN at the time and came across this limestone-based rubber. And I'm not a chemist, but I knew that that was a pretty differentiated story. Yeah. And um, looked a little more deeply into it and realized that it was um, a best-of-breed product in some respects. Sure. That I was certain it could be made a lot better. And um, so, you know, uh, reached out to the Yamamoto Corporation in Osaka, Japan, and, um, you know, reached uh, out to somebody there, didn't really speak much Japanese, of course, and so I needed to kind of get a proper introduction through through another relationship. And we worked with the Yamamoto Corporation to improve upon existing materials that they, they had. Uh, the Yamamoto Corporation dates back to the 1700s with shipping, and you know they've uh, been a presence over there in Japan for a long, long time. Um, Kaichi Yamamoto, who's the innovator of Geoprene, 
Um, I was actually the last Westerner to meet with him hmm. and was one of three speakers at his funeral uh, back wow. in the day. And it was a really big event. In fact, it was kind of, well, it was definitely one of the more eye-opening events of my career, I suppose, where, you know, it was greeters as you would get off the subway line in Osaka, you know, in these white gloves and and, in a suit uh, directing you to where to go to this ceremony for Kaichi. And uh, I'll never forget, like, you know, I'm pretty sure the prime minister of Japan was there. Uh, Kaichi was one of the industrialists uh, from, um, you know, just after World War II that really helped, I think, jumpstart a lot of things, you know. Economically. Yeah, from yeah. a standpoint of, you know, industry and innovation. And, you know, he he got the family into chemical engineering out of shipping right around the time of World War II. And then he um, started innovating with making buttons out of a condensed uh, milk uh, powder, uh, powdered milk. Um, Weird. And then he had, I believe, a patent um, of putting erasers on the end of pencils. Maybe okay. not the patent. Sure. That would probably be an important patent to have, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, a very innovative guy, obviously. And so he was somebody who knew that you could make a better rubber material by not relying on a petroleum-based additive to the raw natural rubber. Okay. Instead, you, you go the route of um, calcium carbonate, and it produces a very specific microcell structure that's totally uniformly aligned. Okay. Which, of course, gives it greater, uh, the product greater longevity, greater functionality. Um, the high-class problem to have, of course, is a lot of happy customers that typically only need to buy one wetsuit. Sure. So that's the trade-off. Our products definitely last a long time. Okay. So did they have a main, um, sor- or a main um, uh, uh, product that they were using that rubber for, the geoprene for? Sure. I mean, you know, to, to be frank with you, they were already working with a slew of different wetsuit companies. Oh, they were? Yeah, of okay. course. You know, uh, not with geoprene, but with other materials that, that they had in their, in their hopper, so to speak. Um, Yamamoto also, interestingly, had their materials on every Apollo spacecraft mission. Wow. <clears throat> so, you know, they've been at this for a long, long sure. time. Uh, Geoprene is an innovation of Matus and the Yamamoto Corporation working co- uh, collaboratively. Right. And, you know, 10 years later, here we are. You know, I actually just flew out to Japan for the funeral of Tommy Yamamoto's mother. And it was I, I, just a, you know, kind of a one of those finding religion moments in your career where you realize you've been doing something long enough to attend the funeral of two different individuals and yeah. kind of getting into that side of it, you know, and it was, uh, yeah, that was an eye opener for me. Um, that was earlier this year. So yeah, obviously great respect to Tommy's family. Absolutely. Um, talking about kind of why to buy a Matus wetsuit, it has this geoprene, which mm-hmm. is, has its inherent advantages. Why don't other wetsuit brands implement that geoprene? Uh-huh. Um, well, I think that it's, it's a decision across the many different fronts. Okay. Um, a lot of times companies are locked into a certain kind of technology because they believe in it philosophically or they, they're wedded to it from an economic standpoint. Um, I think supply chain plays a pretty big role. Okay. Um, you know, for us, it as a smaller business, uh, you know, obviously competing against some pretty large companies out there, for us, it's a really easy decision to, to always go out and say, what's the best of the best we can we can buy? What's the best of the best we can make our products out of? And obviously what that does is it really narrows down uh, the complexity. Mm-hmm. You know, and people will notice that for the most part, um, 
we've never made uh, um, wetsuits out of color. Oh, okay. Um, we've stuck to the classics with, with black suits. And, you know, once upon a time, we had a little homage to um, Celine Cousteau's grandfather. Um, but and it was a colored suit? It, was, it had, a, it had a, a, a marker on there okay. that, that it was... Uh, um, Emulated the suits that, that Jacques Cousteau wore once upon a time. Sure, uh, Celine, somebody that that I met through Mike Muller, and uh, um, you know, it's I, I don't know, it's 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 been kind of neat to see that the community side of, of the business sort of evolve. Yeah, around the product. Sure, because of course, with a product like a wetsuit, we oftentimes compare them to uh, parachutes in the sense that they have to work well, or at least well enough. Yeah, uh, to get you where you want to go. And um, so you find all these people from different corners and walks of life and whatever, all wanting to get into a wetsuit that works. Sure. And so it's a really interesting way to like create this very nuanced and sort of diverse subset of, of you know, yeah. following or whatever. Tell me about, you said supply chain. Tell me about um, limestone, you know, and sourcing the limestone for the geoprene. Are there limitations to that? Is it... I would imagine it's a finite supply, you know? Um, estimates are actually, uh, for the for the calcium carbonate used to produce geoprene, it's north of 3,000 years. Okay. So, um, you know, the petroleum reserves on planet Earth, uh, you know, I don't know what they're doing with the, with the sands up there in Canada and whatever else that they're mm-hmm. utilizing these days to, to, to make that kind of product. But, you know, for the calcium carbonate, there's a, uh, a pretty long... Um, yeah, reserve. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, are there any downsides to the geoprene as opposed to like a, a petroleum-based neoprene? Well, I think I think that the main one that most um, surfers tend to point out is the fact that you can take. I mean, you know, I hate the word, but you can take really cheap petroleum-based rubber. Yeah. And make it about as stretchy as you want. Want it oh, to okay. Be. Right, um, and that's exactly because the cell structure of that petroleum-based neoprene is not as inherently intact. Mm. So, yeah, you could go into a surf shop and grab like a wetsuit that may cost you know 175 bucks retail, hold it at the elbow, pull it at the wrist, and be like, "Wow, this thing's super stretchy!" Mm-hmm. You know, what a great suit. Ipso facto, six months later, the thing doesn't really do what it's intended to do. Sure. Yeah, you can put it on your body and jump in the water and. Maybe there's some insulation properties going on there still, but it's it's like apples and oranges when you compare it to a Matu suit. Sure. Is there a sliding scale of like when you add elasticity, you take away warmth? Like if the stru- cell structure isn't as intact as you say, yep. then it would probably let more water in, I would Yeah, say. no, of course. It, it the, the more elastic that it becomes, the more loose, I guess, yeah. the cell structure is, Yeah, uh, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and that, of course, then means that you need to um, have some sort of battery in there, which sure. companies, of course, do, or like wear some sort of like, you know, other fleece type product to right. keep you warm. I mean, and the whole point of a Matus product is less is more. Sure. You know, let's make it function first. Let's make it solution specific. Let's make it super clean. Less is more to where someone gets in the product. Yeah, they might be compromising a smidge of flexibility. I mean... That being said, the, mod- the modulus on geoprene, uh, like any other rubber, is still greater than your own skin. Right. So it's it's not like you're being restricted, really. <laughs> totally. It's more of a mental thing, I think, for sure. a lot of a lot of people. 
But but I mean, I think it also goes to speak to the kind of audience that Matus has has attracted over the years, and that is someone that we like to say is very educated, uh, very dedicated, and somewhat sophisticated in terms of what they spend their money on. Mm-hmm. So our customers generally will sort of understand a lot of these finer points. Yeah, and you know they'll they'll say, well, you know, I'm. I want that in oh, my totally. suit, you know, as opposed to somebody who may not be as as informed for whatever reason, and they're going to just be like, well, I want it really, really, really stretchy or whatever. You know? Let me ask you this. Um, you talk about wetsuits lasting a long time. I, as a surfer, I've surfed my whole life. I've just become assigned to the fact that I need to buy a new suit every season. Mm-hmm. You know, like I need a new 3-2 every season, a new 4-3 every winter, short sleeve every summer. Like, I'm just going to end up buying four wetsuits a year, basically, to get me through each of the seasons. Is that, um, should I expect more from my wetsuit than that? Yeah. I mean, people joke about how uh, the most economically and environmentally sound car on the road is like a freaking Geo Metro from 91 that's still still being driven on the freeway today kind of thing. Um, and you know, I would never, of course, compare our products to the Geometros, <laughs> far more like a, uh, I don't know, Rolls Royce or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I've noticed so many of our most loyal customers have got a very seasoned yet intact and perfectly functioning quiver of Matus wetsuits. Really, where they got a vest, they got a jacket, they got a spring, they got a mm-hmm. you know steamer, and they also have some sort of full suit. Good. It's not a full suit with a hood too. Yeah, you know, and they they realize that that season in season out, these are products that don't need to get fully replaced as much as they may just want to like freshen up if we've come out with a you know a better sort of fit or stitch or whatever. Sure, and and I mean I think that being that we're kind of you know heading into year nine here. The amazing thing is, only just now, and I, and we were having this conversation in the office just yesterday, um, Matt Larson and myself, he's uh, one of the other founders, and we were saying how like only now do we truly and completely believe that we have nailed it from a standpoint of construction and fit. Okay. You know, because you're always learning, right? You're always learning, you're always improving, you're always trying to kind of... Uh, uh, hold dear that Kaizen philosophy of continual improvement. Sure. And and I think that now the suits, you can finally see people get, get in them here in the black spot, look at that, realize that they don't need to try on a second suit. Yeah. The first one fits. Yeah. You know, and you're like, okay, great. But it passes that dressing room code or whatever. Right. Yeah, no. I mean, there's tailors and um, seamstresses who have been doing it for their entire lives who still probably feel like they haven't quite perfected it. Yeah. You know, it's an ever, yeah. you can always evolve. Um where are the wetsuits manufactured? Um, they're manufactured in a number of different locations. Okay. Uh, so Japan, um, Thailand, um, a number of different locales. We, you know, working on some some other other locations here domestically that I think could be really exciting. So yeah, you know. I, I'm always interested. Just like in, um, I guess we should probably get into your kind of genesis story for the brand, but also about running a brand in Southern California and growing a brand in Southern California and specifically in the surf industry, I think has its own unique challenges. But I guess let's start with that. Um, what is the Genesis story, your Genesis story with Matus? Um, okay. So I, you know, I grew up in San Diego, mm-hmm. uh, in Encinitas and Del Mar. And I went to Torrey Pines high school class of 99. Tony Hawk was class of 87. Nice. Um, he actually came to my third grade classroom 
uh, and did a did an ollie over Principal Ludwizak. What? Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, if Tony Hawk ever listens to this. Hopefully, he remembers that day where he he like ollie a principal. Ollie a principal, and the principal had like his thumbs up and had like all the gear on and everything. That's like, awesome. Yeah, no, it so badass. never happened today. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, uh, it was incredible. Um, and so I grew up in this neighborhood, obviously surrounded by the quote unquote action sports business, but being a, a total outsider to it because um, I was a total jock. Uh, both sides of my family came to San Diego via the military. Oh, okay. Uh, my dad via the Navy. My mom's dad was career army. Um, and everybody in our family was a real big jock, you know? Yeah. And so I played football and ran track in college uh, over at Dartmouth, go big green. And um, graduated from Dartmouth in 2003. Started working for uh, the ex CEO of Mastercard, this guy right. Pete Hart, who's a really interesting guy. He almost, uh, I was told, almost became the commissioner of baseball once upon a time. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> what were you and, doing with him? What was the startup? Um, it, it had to do with affinity credit cards. Okay. Um, well, a, a two two plus factor authentication that, in my view, had a real affinity credit card type play to it. What was your role with the company? Um, just wearing a lot of hats like you would oh, okay. at a tech startup. Okay. Um, so, you know, going out and pounding the pavement to find backers and potential partners and things like that. Sure. Um, and so as a result, I ended up um, developing a bit of a dialogue of sorts with this guy named Bernie Tolbert, who at the time was the head of security for the National Basketball Association. Oh, okay. And um, Bernie helped me get... Uh, in, the, in touch with some people over there and um, there was this event um, in Los Angeles called the NBA Technology Summit back it, it happens every year during the All-Star weekend and so I was able to get into this um, event through a friend and um, was supposed to be I guess working for the NBA that day and instead I kind of took my like earpiece out and my name tag off mm -hmm. and kind of started you know Pound on the pavement some more for the for the my my real job, because I had actually brought a bunch of uh, materials to hand out to the various individuals that were coming to the technology summit, and it was a blast. And uh, they had like panel speakers, and you know, like in one corner there's Anderson Cooper, in another corner there's Ahmad Rashad hanging out with like Charles Barkley or whatever. And for me, I was like happy as a clam because in college I had an internship uh, at IMG. Um, working actually for Charles Barkley's agent, okay. this guy, Mark Perman. And, and uh, it was a really interesting time. September 11th was the second day there on the job. No way. Yeah. Uh, I lived, at the time, I lived in New York, two blocks south of the Trade Center, too. What? So my sister was one of the people running from the building as it was falling. Wow. Uh, and I was, I was up at IMG's office, you know, doing whatever an intern does on their second day, so essentially nothing. And... Um, all these people were walking uptown, and everyone was kind of like, you know, watching what was going on. It was, it was pretty surreal. So, in any case, I can talk more about that. But um, at this at this event, I was kind of surrounded by a lot of the things that that I had kind of seen a bit of at at, at the internship and whatever. And uh, one of the speakers was this guy named John Skipper, who I think today still runs ESPN's networks. And um, he was an English major. I was an English major back in the day, and he made a little quip about something, I think it was George W. Bush related. And uh, so in the limo turnaround, um, after the event was over, I went up to him and said that I, I thought what he said was funny or whatever. And 
you know, we, we joked around for a bit and he handed me his card and he said, yeah, he said, you're a funny guy. He said, write me something sometime. And so I said, okay. And um, I, I wrote him a, a little short story about how I went to that event that day and failed to get into any of the cool after parties and instead just got pretty darn drunk with uh, uh, Alan Iverson and a bunch of guys that were hanging out with him that night mm-hmm. at the hotel bar. And Charles Oakley came through, and it was like, again, just a totally surreal uh, kind of environment. And um, I wrote this story and handed it off to John Skipper, and he handed it off to this guy, John Papanek, who I had no idea was this super legendary sports writer in his own right. <clears throat> and I uh, started writing for ESPN for about two years and okay. came in touch with Giaprine researching an article. Oh, wow. And uh, I was Googling one day and, you know, came across that, that bit of information about the product. And, and uh, you know, I was super, I was super endeavoring, I guess you could say, with, with regard to picking up the phone. Yeah. As you tend to be when you're doing some freelance writing. Sure. You know, and... Um, it's almost like if you now know, if you knew then what you know now, you wouldn't have the balls to really pick up the phone, you know? Yeah, but it's I, like when you're young, it's good just to have mm, no fear, basically. Yeah, just so I, I was... I was always willing to make a phone call to somebody, yeah, and I think awesome. that, and I think that's never really changed. I'm on the phone quite a bit, but, Good. but, uh, yeah, that was kind of the, the genesis in terms of coming across this technology, realizing that it really had the opportunity to be something different. Mm-hmm. And like I said, growing up in San Diego, definitely on the periphery of surf, um, some of the guys that we sponsor to this day are people that I was friends with growing up. Sure. Um, and saying, you know what, like maybe we could kind of do something a bit outside the norm. Um, and so, you know, being that I was extremely young at the time, I didn't have the wherewithal to start a company. Yeah. So, uh, my dad also named John Campbell, um, you know, was, was there and Matt Larson, who, uh, to this day helps, um, run Mitch's surf shop. Um, the three of us kind of partnered up and, and um, got this thing rolling. And, and, you know, I think that Mitch's Surf Shop and, and Matt and the community that's around that is a really special one. Yeah. Particularly for this, for San Diego. Totally. Because, I mean... It's iconic. It's so iconic. You know, you, you hear Mitch Haggio's story of coming, coming here to the States and the kind of success that he's had over the years and the crew of people that are down there, like Carter Elliott and Brett Howard and Matt and just, you know, Matt Warren Joyce and all the different characters that have sort of been there uh, through that shop over the years and it it's a really 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 humbling thing for for me because like I said being a, an outsider to an extent and having such great respect and admiration for the, for the local community of sorts here in town with regard to surf and and then you know how like someone like Mitch and Joel Tudor have known each other for a very long time um, because you know Mitch's was one of Joel's early sponsors and Obviously, we sponsored Joel now for the better part of eight years, and yeah. you know, so there's a lot of really great crossover, and it just it's like a really cool thing to sort of look up and be like, wow, like we've played a, a tiny role along the way in that yeah. in that story. I'm wondering um, when you came across Geoprene when you're researching an a unrelated article to surfing, <clears throat> did you feel as though there was a um, an underserved kind of niche in the wetsuit market and when you saw Geoprint you're like oh you know I've always wanted a wetsuit that was whatever or how did you connect those dots we had an opportunity to number one create a better mousetrap so to speak and do it in a way that was fully differentiated or at least differentiated enough Mm -hmm. to where from what I had 
sort of, I guess, kept seeing from all the bigger brands out there. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, again, not to talk down on, on, on any of the competition, but I felt like when we hit the market back in the day. 2005? 2005, 2006. Okay. Um, we didn't put anything on the shelf until 2006 um, in the fall. But at that, in that era, the surf industry was just cranking. And a lot of the bigger brands out there were, I think, just um, obviously doing a great job in a lot of respects. And then to on the other side of the coin, I think with a lot of like the imagery that you saw, you could almost cover up the logo and you maybe wouldn't be able to tell I agree. whose ad it was. I agree. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, we have an opportunity here to make a very specialized product extremely well or as well as we possibly can and communicate something different around that. Um, and so, of course, at the same time, we definitely didn't want to, I don't know, overstep our bounds or get over our skis and ignore the fact that, I, I hate this word because it's so overused, but being authentic is critical. Sure. It's, it's critical throughout your life. Sure. Right? You should be always authentic. Absolutely. Be sincere. So, um, in endeavoring to make this new product and to market it in a different way... We still wanted to get in touch with um, the roots of the of the industry that we're in, yeah. i.e. Mitch's, and also the crew that got behind the brand um, in the early going out on the North Shore. And right around the same time that I met Flynn Novak, uh, I also met McCalla Jones. And I didn't even know at the time that Flynn had been living at McCalla's place for the longest time, mm-hmm. and that Flynn's uh, best friend uh, was Daniel Jones, McCalla's little brother, and that Jamie Sterling was the godfather of Mikala's daughter. And um, it was just kind of like a really cool, uh, very natural kind of progression of various relationships intersecting. Right. And so that, that crew of guys, plus, plus the, the folks at Mitch's and Joel and um, La Jolla, uh, they all kind of, I think, got behind what we were doing in a, in a way that just made it fun. Yeah. And made it feel meaningful. It made it feel like we were working on something that that mattered. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references. And now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Um, let me ask you more about those relationships um, that are sponsorships, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, you've mentioned Joel Tudor, the Jones family, Flynn Novak, and some of them. Um, I know there's even more surfers in San Diego than Joel. <clears throat> I think, like, I'm just curious how a brand, especially a small brand, quantifies the value of such a thing and um, sees a return on that investment. We kind of talk about it on this show a lot where you've got these big brands like Hurley, for example, and okay, John John Florence definitely sells board shorts and wetsuits for Hurley. You know, he's a marquee athlete. And then you got Julian Wilson doing a similar thing, maybe to a different market. Maybe that's to Australia or whatever. But then you've got this kind of other t- rung of guys who are, you know, hanging on on the QS a little bit and probably don't get nearly the publicity that the other guys get. <clears throat> but they're probably still bringing in decent salaries. And so we always analyze and we're like, well, how do you justify that person and this person and that? And I, It's a convoluted equation that I'm not sure you can actually quantify, especially on that bigger scale. But I'm wondering for a smaller brand, maybe it's a little easier to draw the connections what do those relationships look like? How is that decision made as a brand, you know? Yeah, I think I think that, you know, once you get to a certain scale, like if you're out there selling footwear, you know, um, if you're selling basketball shoes, you need to have a few NBA All-Stars wearing the product. Yeah. I it's almost like you, you don't have to unless somebody else sponsors that athlete. Well, I, I was going to say, yeah, yeah perhaps. And, or, or I was going to say, but if you're selling... Um, premium performance oriented wetsuits okay I think that you can kind of uh, tweak those rules a bit in terms of sponsorships because um, it, like I said the, about the sales structure of Geoprene itself it's it's tight you know and the community around Matus I think is an interestingly kind of tight parallel of sorts where, very poetic you like that <laughs> sorry man I know it's no, right I there it. I love it um, but yeah I mean I think all the people that we sponsor and quote are really I think that everybody who's been around our, our brand knows that we we absolutely always make our best efforts to have um, the Matus family stay as much intact as it possibly can um, you know all the people that have I've kind of helped our brand get to this point a lot of them are owners in the business to a small extent. Um, people that, that I would love to see, obviously, with us, and quote, you know, uh, for the next 20 years. Hmm. Um, that's kind of how I've always viewed our, our uh, representatives. I, I, you know, people use the word ambassadors or advocates or something like this. I think we've got, we've got great people that represent our brand. Yeah. And I think that they know that we're working... Uh, about as hard as we possibly can to make that brand represent them as well as they represent it. Sure. How do those relationships develop? I mean, you explained the example of the Jones brothers and stuff, but like, how do some of those other relationships develop? Um, organically. Okay. You know, you, you someone will kind of introduce you to somebody else or, um, you know, you'll bump into somebody at an event or whatever. And I think at the end of the day, you make that decision as to whether or not that individual is somebody that you would 
want to have a beer with, want to invite sure. over for dinner, want to introduce to your mom. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if you can check all those boxes and you have a good time with them and you kind of feel like you've got that truer, deeper appreciation for who they are as people, yeah. then it's like a no-brainer. You, you, you want them in the product. They want to wear the product. It's like, it's like a true partnership. Yeah, I think everybody seems perfectly aligned with the brand that I've seen. Everybody that represents the brand and everybody I've talked to actually affiliated with the brand sings its praises. We did an episode with Todd Glazer at some point. I wasn't even asking him about wetsuits, but I think he might have just brought it up randomly to preach how good it the wetsuits are. Well, that's, that's super nice to Todd. Obviously, he has been a huge supporter of ours yeah. over the years, and he being somebody who also went to Torrey Pines High School. Oh, okay. Uh, great guy, phenomenal photographer, done some amazing things with Joel and also with Kelly. So, yeah. I mean, it's been amazing to see Todd's um, uh, footprint grow. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's done incredible work. I think... One thing, um, again, that we talk about on this show occasionally, but you touched on is like how brands start in surfing. And because it's such um, a a relatively small community and culture, it's limited to coastline, obviously. And most of the um, current industry is founded in Southern California anyways. So we have direct access to it. But a lot of those brands, even the big brands, grew out of just like this really homegrown effort. You know, guys who needed better board shorts and started making them in their garage, and now it's become this global thing. Um, A lot of those guys did not go to college, and they didn't really have the foundation built that other brands are built on that require maybe more of a... Uh, I don't know, there's more of a speed bump to get involved in certain businesses. Your brand, your business, it seems like came into it with a lot stronger foundation. Like you had an education, first of all. You had worked, you had developed relationships. It wasn't just you alone, self-funded. It's like you got a partner, your father, as you said, helped. And Mm -hmm. then also partnering with Yamamoto Corporation. You know, that's a big entity that not only has this technology, but understands business and understands the world market even. So you have all these resources at your disposal to really build this foundation so that when the thing grows and you can scale properly, you can grow it at whatever the right pace is that you feel is right for the brand. Whereas I think that's a stumbling block for a lot of people. A lot of people develop a cool brand that has a lot of hype and a lot of growth, but then there's holes left in the foundation, you know? And I think that that's something interesting that might be kind of unique to modern surf brands. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll tell you what. um, We definitely had an awesome foundation that uh, carried us through those early days. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Use the word hype. I mean, particularly helped us navigate, I think, a, a certain period of time where we maybe had a little bit of hype. Yeah. That is, frankly, I, I don't know if any entrepreneur feels this way or not. I mean, I'm, I think, but I think some could agree that hype is a really kind of dodgy thing. Yeah. You know, because you, you don't want the spotlight shining on what you're doing that hard. Right. Uh, because when you're trying to make everything continually better and better and better, you know, you, you don't want to maybe magnify things that you're not done cooking yet. Exactly. You know? Um, There's, I, I remember like on Oprah, Oprah show, like she would do these big 
um, giveaways and like shine the light on these brands. And I remember brands going out of business because she endorsed it. They got flooded with orders, but they didn't have their supply chain set up and they were they took all these orders that they ultimately couldn't fulfill, sure. take on a bunch of credit that ultimately they can't fulfill, you know, and it falls apart. Yep. And it's like you don't really think yeah. about that stuff when you're No, you don't. And and, and obviously um, Mike Tyson has this great quote uh, that I think perfectly applies to business in that everyone has a pl- plan until they get punched in the face. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or everyone has a business plan until they get punched in the face. Totally. And um, and so I think that for us, we perfectly executed, uh, I would say, our initial runway. Yeah. I mean, we had our first acquisition bid about 13 months in. Really? Yeah. Um, you know, which is super exciting. Yeah. Um, but... At the same time, I mean, when you're 13 months into any kind of organization, especially one that you're bootstrapping, you know, you got a lot of work left to do. Sure. And a lot of what people see is just sort of what's on the, like the hood ornament type stuff. They're not looking like as deeply under the hood because at at the time, you know, I mean, Matt was holding it down at Mitch's. My father was obviously, you know, non-operational. Yeah. And I was kind of working the phones. Yeah. yeah. Um, And, uh. So, you know, in, in many respects, we are trying to almost, I think, hide to an extent from our brand mm-hmm. becoming a little bit more out there and, and outward. Um, I actually enjoyed it when I would hear people tell me uh, who owned Matus. You know, they'd say, oh, yeah, 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 they're a spinoff of the, you know, this trading company in Japan. It's kind of interesting. But, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because we were tr- always trying to kind of keep some level of smokescreen going. Sure. You know, um, in the early days. Let me ask you, what has been the biggest challenge? We talked about things that you navigated well that are challenges for other people. What's been a big challenge for Matus? Well, I, you know, when you talk about like growing an organization, especially in, in, in the consumer sort of oriented uh, field that we're in, sure. right? you, you got to keep that story going. You got to keep that intrigue going. You know, you want to maintain that level of gravity and, and um, you know, Doing that and keeping that in the right lane is, I think, critical. It's just so paramount. Okay. And I think you can see other brands that, that see an, an opportunity to take that proverbial off-ramp yeah. you know, and just sort of hit that bid on, on selling that. And with each one of those decisions that they're making, they're obviously kind of, I think, narrowing their brand's scope to an extent Okay. to where they're, they're becoming more and more and more like something else maybe than more and more and more as to where they want to eventually end up Mm -hmm. and for us it's like staying in the lane of Matus and building it slowly and building it very methodically and not wanting to kind of strike out and make a decision that frankly could be very short-sighted and I think there's a lot of decisions that sometimes companies are forced to take that are um, driven more for immediate results than they are for like long-term kind of strategy and long-term positioning. And I think that we've been very fortunate to be able to kind of maintain a, a, a decent enough healthy balance. I mean, we've, we've had plenty of challenges though, right? We've had plenty of challenges with having fires at the factory. Oh, really? Having massive delays due to, due to shipping and people moving and, you know, we've, uh, uh, Believe it or not, we've had four offices in the last three years. Wow. You know, just obviously continual improvement being the yeah. the end-all, be-all. I mean, the black spot that we're here in today, 
um, if I close my eyes and think about the exact ideal location for our brand, it's right here. Yeah. I mean, it really is like, I mean, we, we landed on it, but it took us the better part of eight and a half years to get sure. here. Is it, is, are we in Del Mar? We're in Del Mar. Del Mar, right. So it's like busy thoroughfare right here. The beach is a quarter of a mile away, is it? If even that? Uh, the, yeah, the beach is a block and a half away. Block and a half away, yeah. And it's surf spots too down there. It's not just like random. Yeah, beach. I mean, it's not like La Jolla. No. Um, but, you know, you got Torrey Pines. Um, then you <laughs> not got to four, mention that. Yeah, you got Torrey Pines. You got 4th Street, uh, 8th, 10th, 15th, and the beach breaks. Yeah. And then... You know, when, when Dog Beach is good, as people like to joke, it, it it's good. Yes, yeah. but yeah. well, um, what is then the the uh, ambition? What's your ambition for Matus? Because obviously, talking about growing, you want to grow in the right direction. I think that there's probably a glass ceiling with wetsuits. There's only so many people who actually need a wetsuit in this world. And if you make a good quality product, they don't need to purchase it that often. So, what does growth look like to you? What's the ambition for the brand? I think that it's really important to um, look at two words, and that's passion and performance. And those two parameters, I think, are going to usher in um, a number of other opportunities for for Matus as an organization. Okay. Um, you know, we've always, I think, made, like I said, made our absolute best efforts to make certain that the product is getting better every year mm-hmm. and that it's performing to the standards that, that we set for it, set for ourselves, so on and so forth. And I think that it's uh, obvious that there are other opportunities, you know, adjacent to wetsuits and, you know, separate but related to wetsuits where Matus can apply that same level of ethos for product development. Okay. Um, you know, I think that we'd love to see um, us kind of further broaden or redefine um, what people typically describe as someone who's active. You know, um, I think that you, you look at a lot of the people in our space, our immediate space of surf, and in my view, you, you're talking about some of the world's, literally some of the world's most interesting people. Mm. Um, and of that subset of the really, really, really interesting surfers out there, I think that the most interesting ones, in a lot of times, end up being people who you almost need to fight to get it out of them that they actually surf. Yeah. Absolutely. And then they'll they'll start telling you about how they've, you know, been serving for like 15, 20 years or something like that. Sure. And they're like really, really, really credible, and, but they don't really wear it on their sleeve. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really does an adequate job of describing both the men and the women that will follow Matus. In fact, in a lot of ways, I think that it's a, um, a mindset. Mm-hmm. I think that it's like a strange kind of like immediate thin slicing moment where you look at somebody and say that person's a Matus person. Yeah. And, and I, that's been described to me from our own customers. Sure. And so I think that for future growth, I think being able to lasso together that uh, point of view and that competitive drive, that, that Ichiban spirit, yeah. um, I think is, is something that is really exciting and inspiring uh, to all of us here. Right. So whatever that happen, whatever the growth happens to be, as long as it, Stays within the realm of performance and... And passion. And passion, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's smart. Um, let's talk about more about Ichiban and like the Japanese cultural influence in the brand. Where does this come from? Do you well, Japanese in your blood or... Interestingly, the three founders all have had a fair amount of exposure to that, that culture. Yeah. Um, so my father 
being a native Bostonian, he he went to college um, in, in Boston, went to law school in Boston, and didn't get out of Boston until joining the Navy. And he spent half of his time in the Navy in um, Japan. And um, so when he ended up in here in San Diego, he ended up staying. Uh, San Diego was his, was his last stop on his on his tour or whatever. Um, I ended up meeting all of his other Navy friends who ended up staying in, in San Diego, but who had also passed through Japan. And it was like this really interesting amount of uh, interaction, of course, with you know doctors that were former flight surgeons and JAG attorneys and Navy SEALs and um, you know people that had lived really interesting full lives and spent a good portion of their time in the service in Japan and but in Japan as a as a gaijin you know mm-hmm. as an outsider and um, and all of them were guys that really wanted to absorb the culture you know Matt Larson took a little bit of Japanese in high school uh, I always loved it my my father put me in a um, Okinawan karate dojo for um, a little over 10 years wow. to- Toshiaki Gillespie was my uh, sensei back in the day. And it was a really, it was right there in Cardiff. Yeah. Uh, right where, um, uh, by Bestowan Pizza, uh, Tosh had his studio, uh, Shorinru Matsumura. Uh, it was just an awesome dojo. I mean, it was super hardcore. Every class was in Japanese. It would whack you with the bamboo stick. If, wow. You know, you'd spar every class. Um, you know, and... And it was just like a great amount of like exposure, in my view, to a lot of the really kind of fascinating parts of that world. And then, of course, you know, being able to go and experience it firsthand in Japan, dating back to 2005, and seeing the changes in Japan from 05 to today, in terms of just boots on the ground, walking around the street, you know, noticing some of those subtle nuances of when the economy's good, what does it look like to be shopping in Harajuku? Versus when the economy is not as good, you know, um, I, I think that those kinds of observations I think are really important for people in our uh, business to have, and and I think that those sorts of observations can can easily get made in Japan because it's it's I wouldn't say it's a telling culture because it's it's so layered and so nuanced that I think you'll never be able to fully strip away all the layers, but I think that that there are smaller kind of signals that are there that are that are just like that you can just get totally wrapped up in and yeah. spend a lifetime almost uh, uh, pursuing. And, and so I think that a lot of the, the Japanese, you know, clearly being Ichiban, clearly the Kaizen continual improvement type thing. Um, back in the day in college, uh, <clears throat> one of my professors introduced me to the concept of wabi-sabi. I'm not uh, sure I know what that is. Yeah, wabi-sabi, uh, W-A-B-I-S-A-B. Bi okay, um, and it's a, a design philosophy that, in so many words, describes how a table or maybe even a wetsuit could accrue a certain level of good chi by just sort of being with you and kind of, you know, um, making it through all the little trials and tribulations in your life, so to speak. Yeah. And um, and so I, I'm a I'm a I'm a big believer in that in that sort of thing. You know, when people talk about buying less and Spending more yeah. on quality items, I think that falls smack dab right down the fairway of wabi sabi and that kind of philosophy. Yeah, the amount of intention behind the product, not just the physical product itself. Yeah, you know, and you and I uh, became connected through Justin Jay, 
whom we did an episode with. And we talked about that as well, of just how people um, ingest photography, you know, and the same image on Instagram doesn't have the same value as the exact same image on a printed uh, leather bound book. It almost, it has more value in the book because of the intention that went into the book, the amount of hours involved in that layout and the hands involved in stitching the binding, you know, all of that. You know, I, first of all, you know, big shout out to Justin yeah, um, and to Liam Tracy and um, that whole crew back there. Um, yeah, the fact that Justin talks about that kind of thing um, fits so perfectly. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm lucky enough, like a lot of folks, to have been able to just be around Justin when he's working and working on, um, with him on some Matus things and, and seeing how... I would say simplified his approach to what he does really is mm. to the point where you're almost like waiting for the other things to show up. Yeah. You know, all the, all the other contraptions and pieces of equipment and whatever. And then you realize it's just like Justin's there. Yeah. And you, then you look at the finished product and you're like, wow. And you talk about that level of intention where it's like, no, like he's the guy taking that device and making it work the way that he needs it to work for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, yeah, just... You know, some special kind of like focusing of his intention, yeah. you know, and into what he does. It's One, cool. I think he and I might have talked about it a little bit too, but it's like you need to actually learn all that other stuff too. Mm-hmm. You need to build up the knowledge and the muscle memory and all that, but then strip it all away, totally. you know, and then <clears throat> do the super refined version of it. Yeah. But if you don't have all of that frame of reference to work within, You'll never be able to strip it down to its simplest form. Hundred you know? percent. Yeah, it's it's clear that when you, when you work with people who really know a lot of those fundamentals, yeah, it's. I think it makes everything a, a much better experience. Yeah, across the board. I'm looking at the golf club sitting behind you. It's the same thing with your golf swing. You know, yeah. like learn everything about that you need to know. But once you address the ball, let all that go. And right. Just do it. Right. 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 If you're yeah. thinking about all the things you learned, it's going to be the worst. Worst version of it. Um, in the French, like in wine, the French refer to like their vineyard site. They talk about terroir. Hmm. It's similar to the Japanese thing you're talking about, where it's like this vineyard's better than that vineyard, but they're right across the street from each other. Why is that? And it's actually not just that vineyard versus this. It's in the good vineyard. This vine, this row is better than that row hmm. that are separated by three feet. Not only this row, but this vine in this row is better. And why is that? And it might be terroir is undefinable, and there's no way um, to really translate it into English. There's no comparable word, but it's like maybe 300 years ago there was a wedding on this site, and that infused something into the land. And on that site, somebody was murdered, you know, and that infused something into this land, this energy or this chi or whatever. There's these things that exist um, that are just undefinable, but you drink the product in that case and you like it better for some reason, you know? And so I think it's it's important to have that side, sort of philosophy behind driving the brand. Like you said, passion and performance. You need the performance, of course, but what is it without the passion, you know? Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I think that, and, and hearing you describe that, the, the vine and the story and, 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 and that kind of depth that goes into mastering something. Um, 
you know, I, I, I love that aspect of, of Matus. Yeah. In the sense that our, our story over the years, we've had, you know, um, I, I wouldn't, it's, it's cliche to say ups and downs, but it's, it's definitely been a real story. Yeah. You know, um, which, which of course you can look back on and kind of, Mm-hmm. You know, crack a beer on it, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, and it's only the beginning, really. I mean, in some respects, <laughs> it, yes, it, it, and it feels like like that exactly. Yeah, where you know it 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 took us this period of time to effectively, I think, earn our stripes. Sure, you know, and gain that additional level of permission to let ourselves be ourselves. Yeah, totally. Where are the wetsuits available? Where can people follow up on this conversation and purchase and all that sort of thing? Um, on the East Coast, you know, the guys at Saturdays do a great job selling them. Um, Proof Lab up in San Fran. Mitch's, of course, uh, in San Diego. Um, Matus.com is always available. Um, you know, we put a lot of hard work into the website, and we're also very excited about this Can't Knock the Hustle thing that we're looking to bring to life. Um, as sort of a uh, being emblematic of our of our warrior spirit, I guess you could say. We didn't discuss that at all. Is that a new marketing or a new uh, campaign that you guys are? Uh, yeah. So um, it, it's interesting. You know, can't knock the hustle, aka CKTH. It's Matusa's storytelling platform. Okay. Um, you know, I, I met this guy John Ward um, of Icon Four by Four back in the day at a at a party that that. Uh, some name dropping here, but at a, <laughs> why not, right? Sure. At a party that that uh, uh, James Purse put on back in the day, and um, and this this guy John had just like this amazing amount of energy, and you know, had a, had a great time hanging out with him. And um, he mentioned the fact that Mike Muller was into Matus, and and um, so Mike and some of his friends like Sage Vaughn and this other guy Neil Kellerhouse really kind of got behind um, not only Matus but we're able to sort of, I think, probably see a lot of what they were doing on a daily, daily basis in what we were doing. Sure. Obviously on a younger, more nuanced wetsuit scale. Sure. But um, over the years, what has definitely carried us through each and every one of these office moves and critical decisions and navigating something that kind of pops up on your radar, you have to kind of like course correct or take some evasive action. It's that, it's that word hustle, you know? Mm. Um, it'll carry you through, right? Yeah. I mean, even if you need to, you know, win ugly, as long as you're still hustling enough to win, yeah. you're going to survive and fight another day. And so now, when I, when, I, when I look at where we have an opportunity to kind of, I think, broadcast our, our, our point of view on that front and, and fold into the equation a lot of these characters and names that, that aren't just really us name-dropping. It's like really, in some respects, I feel like there's a whole Rolodex of names that have been part of this prequel mm. for the Matus brand that we've yet to really explore and really tell, fully tell their story as it relates to the brand. Yeah. And these are conversations that we've had with team writers and you know media personalities and folks that have really, I think, taken great interest in, in what we've done. Yeah. And and me knowing that there's like I said, nothing is worse than like half stepping something or trying to rush something out there to market just to prove that you, you were there. Um, I think that what's really unique now about our positioning is the fact that we can not take our time, but we can kind of cultivate. take a step. Yeah. To take a step back and cultivate like, Hey, you know, whose story do we really want to tell and why? Yeah. And we have a cool project happening right now that, that touches on a lot of that, that I, that I believe will 
um, open up the realm of opportunity in, in other, you know, similar projects with other kinds of people, whether or not they're young or old to the Matus brand? Well, good, because that's another thing we talk about on this show, especially with like competitive surfing and the World Surf League, that they don't take time to cultivate the stories. Like, what do you really know about Joel Parkinson or whatever? I don't know anything about Joel Parkinson other than his sponsors, you know? So they need to slow down, take the time, and really cultivate these stories. And I think that the way that society has gone has become just like a a mile a minute and like Instagram and everything needs to be instant. But I think that's a fad and that's a trend that is going away. And that really what people want is connection. And quality quality product fits under that too. They're willing to pay a premium for a quality product that has intention, has a story, all that. I mean, honestly, that's exactly what this podcast platform is. You know, it's awesome. the antithesis of Instagram. It's like right. let's get to know people. Totally, you got to commit to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that that approach is right, and creating kind of a storytelling platform is smart because you're right. You're not doing your athletes any service by not telling their story, you know, and, and they're not going to be able to do the brand a service if you're not allowing them to showcase their personality. Uh, so it's a wise investment in your investment. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited because I think that we can, we can really lean into that and really take ownership of that phrase. Yeah. Uh, so, so what does the platform look like? Is it video? Is it text? Is it yeah, it'll, it'll be, you know, the, the ultimate goal is to see it be able to uh, be adaptive enough to filter into all the various, you know, feeds or channels yeah, or whatever. Sure. And at the same time, um, stick within those two parameters of passion and performance. Yeah. Um, you know, we have um, that first project touches on um, a couple stories that I, I think describe that that warrior spirit, to, to describe that that greater commitment to something. Mm. Um, you know, right now we have a, a tab on our existing website where it says CKTH and we actually made this piece about Fred Marinello, my, my art teacher in high school. Uh, really interesting guy. Um, from immigrant family in Connecticut, went to Rochester Institute of Technology, Fulbright Scholar, um, got out of school, was disenchanted with the commercial art world and then I think he was like the 37th person to join the Peace Corps. Oh, wow. And then after the Peace Corps, decided that he was going to fully invest in living a more visceral life uh, in order to become a real artist. And so then he enlisted in the Marine Corps during the 1968 Tet Offensive uh, to be a combat engineer. So he wanted to, you know, he, he saw a lot of combat duty, but he effectively was building a lot of dams and bridges at the same time. And uh, when he got out of the Marines, he uh, helped found um, Tory Pines' uh, art program and ran it for 34 years. And, um, you know, he is a great example of can't knock on the hustle, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, he, uh, he obviously saw something that he was passionate about and I think did about as good of a job as you could to perform uh, at, a, at a high level for a very long period of time, yeah. you know, and, um, and so... Yeah, it's stories like that, uh, the spirit like that, which of course exists in, in every great artist, every good athlete. Sure. You know, they, they, it's. I think that one of the one of the coolest things about um, to talk about, you know, the idea of competing is, of course, that if you if you want to win, um, the work ethic and hopefully the 
the talent there is sort of a given. Sure. You're working with whatever talent you have, so that's, you know, and whatever work ethic you can put against that, you know, it better be, you know, your, your 110%, mm-hmm. so to speak. But on top of that, it's like, what sort of passion do you have? What, what sort of self-expression are you going to mm-hmm. give yourself the ability to kind of put out there? Uh, regardless of what people think, yeah, and of course therein lies the hey man, you know, awesome. And that's the difference between the world champs versus the other guys on the world tour. It's like, yeah, they're all peak performers. They all have a, that level of talent. But what's the next step? Is the drive, right? You know, the passion, right? That's the difference between Kelly and another guy. Yeah, you know? yeah, and you know, I, I'm I'm frankly super thrilled to see what what he's done, what Kelly has done to sort of be a pioneer of sorts, of course, uh, throughout his career. Yeah. Right? Back and forth, back and forth, of just continually, I think, staying true to all the things that surfing holds near and dear, and at the same time, really breaking the mold. I mean, you know, how, do you, how do you not respect that? Totally. Sweet, dude. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Matus.com is where you go. We'll have a link and some prime photos and videos related to our discussion, including that video of John's high school teacher, Fred Marinello. All that stuff on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also find all 81 past episodes of Surf Splendor archived on our website completely for free. That includes past episodes with Tom Carroll, Tim Curran, Tom Morey, Chas Smith of Beach Grit fame, surfboard shapers, photographers, publishers, all manner of people related to surfing. And while we produce and publish the content completely for free, we do ask that you help spread the good word. The more listeners we have, the easier it is for us to attract big guests to sit and spend an hour of their time talking to me. So tell your friends, share it on social media, rate and review the show on iTunes, keep the snowball growing. Thank you. All right. We are in the thick of this Bell's Beach event right now. It is as strange and unpredictable as the Snapper event was. Uh, I could not have been more wrong about my predictions as to what would happen that we discussed on last week's episode. Felipe is steamrolling. Nat Young is back on top, which I think is actually really great to see. Um, I think that's really part of the allure of professional surfing is that it's really just full of surprises. So anyways, my fantasy team is shot. I'll look forward to recapping it all on next week's episode of Surf News with Scott Bass. But until then, this is your host for Surf Splendor, David Scales, saying thanks for listening and reminding you to go rinse it all off in the ocean and shred on. Mm-hmm.